On this week's episode, Lee Griffin pretty much agrees with Scott. And they come out and they're doing it. And you didn't yell clear and all these things. Well, then they so, deserve to get chopped. Well, I, you know, I, I pretty much agree with you, but I think, you know. <laughs> Scott Boris refuses a clearance from Lee. And, you know, advise, advise ready for takeoff. Okay. Now they may kind of nudge you a little bit and be like, dude, it's blowing 30 knots from you know direct well, crosswind if, well if i'm in a 150 i ain't taking off in 39 crosswind and i give up my brutal dictatorship over the foreign podcast for this one episode well, i don't even know as i'm speaking this right now what you read when you clicked on this episode because mr lee griffing is picking the entire episode topic tonight Welcome to this week's episode of the Farming Podcast. Uh, this week we are changing it up. It's not going to be a uh, Melian In series quite that. We are going to go a little, little longer is the plan on this. We are mixing it up in a way where I, Robert Berger, am usually the brutal dictator of show topics. Um, not necessarily the sidetrack stuff that you hear every episode, but the main overall show topic I usually pick. And we make somewhat of an attempt to stick to that. Today, we are handing the reins of the show topic, the show title. I don't even know, as I'm speaking this right now, what you read when you clicked on this episode. Because Mr. Lee Griffing is picking the entire episode topic tonight. And I will preface this with I sprung this on him. About 30 minutes ago, as he was putting children to sleep, so he has not had a lot of time to think this through, but we're going to roll with it anyway, um, because I'm sure Lee will come up with something good to tell us. Uh, Scott is also does not know what the topic is, so we are going to roll with it. Mr. Mr. Griffin, what is this week's episode about? Well, I'd like to talk about what used to be called the special emphasis areas in the practical test standards. And now that it's converted to the ACS, it's kind of sprinkled throughout. You're kind of actively tested where back in the day, you know, when I was uh, full-time instructing, it was the, the, the special emphasis areas that would kind of be covered during your oral. So over the course of all the orals that I, I listened in on a lot of the orals I was in, I was in the room with my students. Um, which was educational for me as a new instructor and also kind of terrifying because when the student, you know, got a wrong answer, sometimes it was your fault. You just omitted it and didn't teach that to them or not in the right way or not in the presented in the way that they were asked or they didn't get the whole picture. So over the, all these check rides that I had given or, um, I'd, I'd send my students off to take, I would sit in and I was lucky enough to use basically the same examiner designated examiner all the time so i got to kind of know a lot of the subject matter and how he asked things and i basically created a document and um it's not so clear cut now because kind of again sprinkled throughout the check ride but i'd like to cover the special emphasis areas i think it'd be really handy for um you know somebody who's about to go take a check ride and have this kind of be maybe at the forefront of their mind that's going to that's going to be in there so if you comb through the acs you'll find all these items they're not going to be condensed. They used to be very condensed. Um, and now, um, 
I've kind of expanded upon them and turned them into something that, you know, I'd go over with the student as just kind of like a cleanup backstop before their check ride. I don't know. Is that something you guys would be in, in, into? I mean, how's that sound? Let's roll with it. 100% this topic. And I, I do want to preface this. If, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, well, this is part of the PTS and now it's the ACS as far as the, the standards by which you get your, um, all your all your certificates now, um, but the private pilots, uh, majority of our listeners are interested in this private pilot stuff. It seems like from the, some of the feedback we've gotten, uh, remember that your designated examiners, a lot of them have been around a long time, and they've switched to the ACS from the PTS. So a lot of this stuff is still in their minds because they've been doing it for so long, kind of emphasis areas, even if the ACS isn't necessarily spelling it out. Yeah, uh, it doesn't call them that. They're all still there. Yeah, they're all still there. Yeah. All right. It's just, you know, you got to look at each item one by one, and I I turn them into a condensed document um, that would just, like, again, like I said, be, you know, some of them are just straight, what used to be special emphasis areas, right in the front of the PTS, and now ACS is sprinkled throughout. But... Um, you're still going to, it's still, you know, grading. It's still Jeopardy um, items on the check ride. Just, it's kind of all over, not so much right there in the oral. You know, some of the stuff you'll be looking at uh, on the check ride or um, like during when you're actually doing maneuvers or conducting the actual flight. Yeah, let's roll with it, man. So, if, Scott, you said uh, you're starting to chime if, in. If you're like me, you're not familiar with the PCS or the ACS, and you don't really know what either one of them is. Right. And as a new, even if you're a new instructor, I mean, this will help this, this, what I've created did does help create some organization, you know, for your thoughts, as far as getting somebody prepared for the check ride throughout. And we've said this all along, you know, getting, getting your, your private pilot, you, you never thought going in that you would learn so much about so many different topics and it can be, it's very easy to you know just overlook something or you hit it once you thought it was rock solid and then they've kind of forgotten about it so this is a good way to kind of clean up or you know round out the rough edges and get them prepared um and and it honestly is a catalyst for some continuing conversation between you and the student like fill any knowledge gaps we've talked about the knowledge test and what that does for you well, that's obviously going to leave some holes and, you know, some things are practical, some things not so much. And it does, it does, again, that does help, you know, show some, um, some deficiencies and you're supposed to, that's one of the, um, uh, endorsements you give a student before they send them on their check ride that you have given them instruction on the knowledge areas. They were deficient on the knowledge test and they are prepared for the private pilot check ride. That's one of the three endorsements you give a student before a check ride. And this again can serve as a little bit of, you know, some talking points, make sure that everything's kind of ironclad for lack of a better term. And I kid you not, you will cover this the day before the same day. If their check rides in the afternoon, you'll cover it in the morning with them and send them for the check ride. And they will just space on some of this. That's taking tests though. You know, they'll space on some of this. And that's what I tell, that's what I tell students. I'm, you're, there's some point during this oral or this check ride that I'm going to let you down. And there's a point in this check ride that you're going to let me down. That's just the way it is. There's something they're going to screw up that I taught them. They had perfect before. And there's something that I will have somehow not taught them or not taught them correctly or proficiently or whatever. That's just the way it goes. 
Yep. So Scott, were you driving more so at what is the uh, PTS and ACS? Yeah, I don't know what they are, and the special emphasis areas. Is that what, is that what okay, it is? So is that what this practical about? tests, P- PTS, practical test standards, used to be the little booklets you get that the designated examiner or D. Yeah, Brandon was well, calling D-E. it DP designated practical D-E. examiner. Okay, so those are used interchangeably. I, I always just yeah, call them a DP. Sure. Um. Every check ride you take, you have the book of what the examiner is basically using too. You you can buy that. I didn't realize this during the private, but I bought it. There shouldn't be any favorite. surprises. There shouldn't be any surprises. It's a, literally a book that walks through what the examiner um, does during a check ride. Um, big big picture, not the minutia, but big picture stuff. And you can buy that book too. I recommend you do buy that book. Only it's no longer called the Practical Test Standards. Uh, I don't know when exactly it changed, but now it's the Airman Certificate, Airman Certification Standards, ACS. It's a very similar book. They shuffle some around. Um, in the PTS, there used to be... Um, what, are we, what are we doing the episode about? There's the, just consolidated, uh, you know, kind of in the foreword, if you will. There was a consolidated um, section called uh, Special Emphasis Areas that had to be covered 100%. Yes. Special and, emphasis areas. Yeah, that was in the PTS. Um, Mr. Griffin um, and I and Scott actually, even though Scott doesn't remember it quite so detailed. Um, he, all the all the de most of the DEs DPEs, they all have this stuff in the back of their mind, even though it's not spelled out explicitly at the beginning of the ACS like it used to be with the PTS, but still, like Mr. Griffin said, all in there still. So it's still a good thing to cover because it is A, still in the ACS, and B, a lot of the designated examiners, they they are been doing the PTS for so long, it's still in their mind too during a check ride that this is stuff the FA wants us to wants us to cover. So yeah, we're all creatures of habit. I mean, if you do enough enough check rides or whatever, or enough you know uh, recommendations to a designated examiner, you're going to see their like idiosyncrasies and their hot spots. That's just the way it is. We're all like that, you know. So yes. you use the same one routinely, you'll get to see like what what they really pay attention to. How fair are they, and how do they how do they kind of grade? You know, where does the curve fall? I guess. Mister Boris, did that yeah. answer your question? Yeah, pretty much. I just don't remember ever being talked to about the... Because Don Don did not tell us about the PTS. No. Um, Because I did... When we went to our private check ride, I didn't know this even existed, that you could like get a book. Because it wasn't... He probably mentioned it, but it was casual. And you and I, unless we're forced to, aren't going to really look into it. And then it was when I went to do my commercial I'm like because I did my instrument part 141 so that was a little different and very structured uh, but then I went to my commercial again part 61 and that's when I grabbed the uh, the at the time PTS practical test standards for the commercial check right I was about to do and I'm like holy cow how have I not known about this until now because I went through private and instrument not really knowing that that existed and that you could just go buy the book um it felt like it was cheating, but it's not cheating. Everyone does this. This is not hidden. They <laughs> sell it at you know, Sporties and Amazon, wherever. 
books are sold, you can get the ACS and go through the same book the examiner's going through. Well, and if I mean, if you're like a commercial flight instructor and you're working for a flight school, it's honestly a way to upsell. Somebody comes in to learn, it's another book you sell them. Yeah. You know, five bucks, 15 right. bucks, whatever it is. It's just one more thing in the pile that you can just slide across the desk and tell them to pay for. Oh, this will help you, you know, whatever. But in a certain sense, it is a way that the student can, the consumer can help keep the instructor or that flight school honest a little bit. You know, that, that is, that is the check, right? That is all the things you can be tested on. Now, I mean, they can water it down and, and give you, because it, you know, it covers everything under the private pilot certificate level. So, you know, that's going to be all, you know, your airplane, uh, single engine land, airplane, single engine C, you know, multi-engine land, multi-engine C, all the different ways that you can get a, uh, private pilot certificate. So there's a lot of stuff in there. You know, the book is much thicker than it needs to be if you're just doing a private pilot single engine land because it's yeah. got to cover the spectrum for the private pilot certificate level. So they could put that on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and send you on your way and you would have, you know, what you, what your check ride, basically a template, a footprint for what your check ride would look like with some minor variation, you know, obviously in like the routine, like the flow of it. What are you, you going to do? Steep turns first. You're going to do stalls first, you know, things like that. But other than that, it's, it's all there. Um, and it's a way for you to, to keep to keep the uh, flight school or the instructor honest, for lack of a better term, if you walk away with that early on in your training. All right. So let's jump into it. This uh, magic document you've accrued over your years of flight instructing on these special Ephesus areas. Yeah. And in the first, I want to say it looks like probably... Probably the first 14, 13, 14, 15 of them are the actual legitimate, what used to be special emphasis areas. And then I went on to basically compiling a lot of stuff that is um, maybe I frequently missed. So for a lot of people, you know, your instructor is probably doing a better job than I did when I was first learning and um, is probably covering these things. But in very, you know, it's going to give you, you know, maybe a... um, it's talking points. Start a discussion and basically uh, shine a light on anything where there's a little bit of deficiency, any questions that might pop up. Uh, like I said, like a cleanup. So the first one here is um, uh, positive aircraft control. And so I've summed it up. You know, this is a document that I used to just hand out to students basically. And we talk about it the night before if their check was early in the morning or that morning if their check was in the afternoon. And so what I have here, you're flying the airplane. It's not flying you. Uh, if an outside force, you know, example, like a gust or a thermal, you know, an updraft upsets the airplane, get it back to the original attitude, you know, the original state uh, as promptly as possible. You don't want to over control, but get it back, you know, pretty close to where it was uh, as quickly as possible. And then sometimes the only thing you can do is be as reactive to these outside forces as you can be. You can't see gusts coming. You can't see that updraft. Like if you're coming into land and, and you know, there's, it's, you know, the summer. So you have these updrafts and the wind coming through the trees, creating all this like mechanical type turbulence. You can't see those things happening. So just be reactive as you can and try and keep it in the desired flight path and the desired attitude uh, as you can. You guys got anything on that? I don't know how we're going to run this, but. Um, yeah, that's anything to pretty add straightforward. Yeah. Uh, one of us will have a comment at some point and. Don't worry, we will we will cut you off and start talking when we have that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I haven't I haven't found anything I disagree with yet. I'm sure I will. We've covered one thing. 
we've covered one thing, Scott. Yeah. Well, I'll find something. That you're well, I'm sure that you will. I'm sure yeah. you will. And I, I hope that you do. That's how yeah. we'll learn. Oh, uh, the next one in, in uh, is positive exchange of flight controls. And even in the professional, so where we should be doing this as much as we can, um, we're not as, we're not, it's kind of like you've lost, it's, it's different, it's goofy. Let me just cover it here first. Um, positive exchange of flight control. So it's a three-step process. So if you are the one flying, the pilot flying, PF, pilot flying, you're flying, and you need to hand the controls to somebody else. You need to put something in the GPS. You need to tune a radio. You want to look at the map. You um, you want to do anything that would kind of take you away from your flying role, meaning you are not 100% on, on top of maintaining you know flight path and speed and those sorts of things. If you're doing anything that, just, that takes you away from that, and you're going to exchange flight control, so you're going to give it to another pilot, whether that be your instructor, the examiner, any you know any any other type of situation. It's a three step process. So you're the pilot flying. You're going to say you have the flight controls. The person receiving the flight controls will then say back to you, "I have the flight controls," and then you again, as the previous pilot flying, will again reaffirm you have the flight controls. You have the flight controls. I have the flight controls. You have the flight controls is the way that should go, and it should go basically just like that. Um, and you can see why that would make sense um, on a private pilot check ride. You've likely never flown with this examiner before, but there may come a situation where you need to exchange flight controls with that individual, um, and that would be the way that the FAA wants you to do it uh, at all certificate levels. That, that concept right there should travel with you through your whole flying career, whether it be uh, you know, it's a, a, a simple trainer, single engine trainer, all the way through the space shuttle. That concept right there, that three-step process is ironclad should go with you all the way through your flying career. Um, Anything. How have you guys seen that? Have you guys seen that? Typically, I've... I'll, I'll do this, but it's um, usually like a, like a two-step. It's... Okay. Um, Somebody says either you got the controls, or if you take the controls, you, someone says I took I, I have the controls, and the other person like acknowledges that. But the the third step is probably um, helpful. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. That's a good idea. And then when you're on a check ride, that's probably you should do that. If the FAA says you should do that, that's probably the way you should do it. But I'd say in reality, um, a lot of times as a as you go through different instructors, you will you it, it won't be a three step process. It'll be more of a two step process. It's much more casual. And it depends on what what the reason was. Like if I'm the instructor or I'm the pilot in command, it's not a I'm not asking for you to give me the controls. I have the airplane. Bun do you know, done. It's yeah. I have it. I'm flying now. You, you know, you just, you let go. I got it. That has happened. I've had that happen numerous times. Um, and obviously that becomes much less, much less formal because situations dictated kind of, I don't want to say an emergency, but a much more timely exchange. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand what this is in the training environment. Hopefully there aren't too many situations that are like a dire circumstance where it's got to be like that lightning quick, but 
obviously could arise. That was yeah. That that'd be my comment. Is that's um that's the ideal way for it to happen. Um, a lot of times there are less. A lot of times there won't be a three step in practical yeah. situations. I don't. But, I don't think we ever did like a three step. No, Don always oh. just did. We did two. Yeah, just like yeah. the controls. You know, yeah, use the controls. Yeah. Yeah, and I would have to dig in the ACS to find out where maybe there it kind of points towards this, and maybe it's you know some other document, some um, advisory circular or something like that. It's out there. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's still a question we are asked routinely. And you know what? As a professional, we I mean, we we don't we don't do it. It's kind of like so many times it always comes down to how by the book is this dude? Oh, he's like halfway by the book or three quarters away by the book that kind of sets the tone as to how we're going to do it. Like if somebody says in, in, in a kind of verbatim, you have the flight controls that right there is almost enough that everybody knows that the, the, the corresponding follow-up uh, responses of, you know, I have the flight controls, you have the flight controls again. So when you hear it kind of said in that way, you have the flight controls that almost tells you everything you need to know for how the rest of it, the exchange is going to go. But when you hear somebody, okay, your airplane or something, you know, more casual like that, uh, it's, it's, uh, and then it's like, yeah, I got it. You know, it's, it's, I'm the type of guy that if, whether it's casual exchange or formal exchange, if I'm the one that took the controls, I'm still eyeing the other person and making sure they're not on the controls anymore. And if, I'm handing off the controls, whether it's casual or the formal way. I'm eyeing them up, making sure that they're actually doing it. You know what I mean? Make sure they're not touching the controls. Well, well, it's they more are touching it depends on which. Yeah, it depends on which role you're doing, though. If you're taking, if you're giving the controls, that's where it's more important that you know that the person you're giving the controls to is taking the controls. I would agree with that. That's the taking it. You know, you're gonna like. You, there's a reason you're taking it. And you're going to overpower them. Adrenaline does crazy things. You're going to overpower them. If they're doing something that is not meeting the emergency, I'm assuming the adrenaline hasn't hit them yet. You're going to be able to overpower them. And Unless they're stronger than you. They could be stronger than you. Uh, yeah, probably not likely. But anyways, I'm just saying that if in the moment that your your reaction to the emergency that maybe they don't even see. I'm not I'm wasn't not, there an wasn't there an airliner that crashed because the two pilots were fighting each other and they didn't realize it? That happened all the time. I'm sure there are I'm not an accident aficionado, but I am sure that it happened often. And that's something that routinely comes up in what we have um in these transport category airplanes. We have what are called um immediate action items or memory items sometimes used interchangeably they do mean two different things but a lot of times you'll see one of them being do not um uh do not cross control or do not you know do not use co-pilot's control or something to that effect showing you know don't don't do the same don't try and fly don't try and both fly it yourselves you're going to fight each other um, that can happen. There's you can make it a memory item or an immediate action item all you want. Human nature, one both of you see the threat, and both of you are trying to whatever 
alleviate, you know, the danger, you're going to both react. And no matter what kind of training you have, you're just, you're going to do what you think you need to do to, you know, get away from it or change the situation. So, um, but yeah, I mean that, that, that is, that's the, that's exactly the thing. But if it's a true emergency, who's going through this three-step process, right? You know, and that's why they try to talk about, you know, captain's authority and, and things like that. So it's somewhat militant in, in the way that like the captain can do no wrong or whatever. So just submit, let go, let go. And, and, and so that's kind of permeated a lot of the items and a lot of the culture. Um, obviously the captain can be wrong. They're only human, but you know, just let go is the bottom line. Um, so, and it goes both ways. You know, there was a time when I was a first officer, you know, early on in like kind of my airline flying days, I was coming into an airport and I really wanted that leg. Um, cause I was actually coming back into Cleveland. I was super happy about it. And I just, you know, I wanted to land at my home airport and, you know, and I thought it'd be so cool. And it was super windy and the wind or the, it just snowed. They plowed it, but it just snows. The brake action was not perfect. It was legal for me to land. Yes. As a first officer, but like we're getting just rocked on, on final. And I said, dude, I'm going to need you to take this one. I hated you guys know me. I hated doing that. So you didn't, you didn't feel comfortable bringing it in. Not feel comfortable landing the airplane. What did he say? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you. So I gave it to him and we were far enough out because that's another thing. You don't want to hand. Yeah. Not when you're on, what, when you're at airplane short final, like at 50 feet, you don't want to hand. Yeah. You're getting ready to flare. You're not going to hand off. No, that'd be bad. Right. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, you're super cognizant of those sorts of things. And, and we had talked about, you know, that it was going to be, you know, it was going to be kind of crappy and whatever. And I'd flown with this guy before and he was comfortable with me. Uh, and I thought I was comfortable and just the conservative nature in me just kind of like, you know what, this dude's got way more time, way more experience than me. Can you take this one, dude? And he's like, oh yeah. So he, he takes it. Guess what we end up doing? We end up going around because he doesn't want to do it either. <laughs> so oh. we ended up and we went down to Akron Canton. He gave me back the flight controls, and then I went and landed at Akron Canton myself. But um, those runways were better aligned, and the wind was less, and the runways were in better condition. What were you but, in? Uh, uh, that was a CRJ 700. And you had passengers? Mm-hmm. They just had to figure out a ride then? They do all kinds of goofy stuff. You know, when it's Akron to Cleveland, they'll it's not very buses. far. Yeah, yeah. They'll do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Well, and you got to think like, well, like at the time I was based in Charlotte and you know, you have all kinds of little airports around there. You know, you'll get in, a, in an airplane, you'll go fly 18 minutes. What would have been an hour drive for them? Yeah. Like just get in your car, just get yeah. in your car and drive to Charlotte and get on the plane. Right. No, they want to drive five minutes from their house, get on an 18 minute plane ride to their connecting flight it's weird but so there's a lot of that so they were always arranging whenever things were messed up they would always arrange shuttle buses get them in so akron to cleveland you know was was an easy um easy you know decision for them to make um and you there was somebody on that plane that's just like oh my god i'm i live in akron and now i gotta take this shuttle bus to cleveland to get my car and then drive back to akron (laughs) Probably hundred percent. 
Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's very, very, uh, very possible, but that's, that's the way it is. That's, that's the life. I mean, these are, that's so not normal for, I mean, you guys know what the winners are like up here. I mean, you get these, well, the way the runways are oriented at Cleveland Hopkins with the prevailing wind in the, in the uh, winter, it's, I mean, it's terrible when you, and you yeah. c- couple that with, with a, um, uh, slicked over runway and directional control. I mean, it's not like landing a 150 in, you know, no. 15 knots of wind. I mean, it's, we were, I mean, it was gusting. I think I want to say like up in high forties, like 34, 37, something like that. If my memory serves me, that's, I mean, that's kind of a lot, you know, it's crazy, but, uh, yeah. So yeah, bottom line, positive exchange of flight controls. Um, and, and obviously conditions are going to dictate if it's an emergency it's going to go down way different. Like we just discussed. Um, I got nothing else on that unless you guys do. That's uh, that's good for me. That yeah, was number cool. two out of seventy-two. No, not seventy-two. No. Okay. Uh, How many are there? What are you thinking? No, no, go, go. We'll, okay, we'll just right. we'll do a we'll do we'll skip. We're gonna double record Scott pick an episode, but I, I like this. Let's just run with this until Scott falls asleep on us. Gotcha. Next was stall spin awareness, which we talk about, and there's this should not get covered. But the way sometimes it can be asked, and the FAA is big on um, scenario-based uh, uh, training, which is good. And some people are really good that way, But and, and they can react fine in the airplane. And that's kind of actually exactly how I kind of feel like I perform. In the airplane, I do a pretty good job. But if you were to tell me and paint me a scenario, I'm not always very good at it because I guess I, I kind of overthink it. And I'm told that a lot. And I think, Rob, you said that to me today. Um, I'm told that a lot. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. And I tend to do that. That's my nature. And so if you can't tell. And so you're the the kind of guy that has Excel spreadsheets. You run on stuff when you're thinking about something. Well, it's not normal. Yeah. Well, no, it's 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 good. It's not normal. No. (laughs) (laughs) Some situations it's good. Yeah. Well, so, so scenario based with the FA is big on. And if, and of course, it, it, it's up to the person presenting the scenario. Are they giving you all the facts that you need to make the right decision? And I always try to wonder, what are they trying to get at? And sometimes I can guess that right. Sometimes I can get it wrong. But I'd rather it be a little bit more pointed a question. But that takes a lot of the scenario concept out of it. So stall spin awareness, the way it had been kind of brought up a multitude of times, and the way I wanted to sum it up, again, as a talking point, and then kind of uncover any deficiencies – how, what are the steps to recovering? If you had to put it into words, you know, like a lot of times as a, as a good airman, a good stick, you know, a good stick and rudder pilot, you just fly the airplane, you know, but to really, um, again, open the conversation up the, what they want to hear is stall spin awareness. So recovering from a spin, which, you know, we always talk about, you know, are very dangerous at a low altitude, very, you know, if they're going to happen, they happen a lot in the traffic pattern. Cause you're that, that is why, Ground reference news, which I know you guys covered. Um, I wasn't there for that episode at that point, but ground reference maneuvers are really looking to see your rectangular the course turns around a point, S turns across a road, just flying in the uh, traffic pattern at the airport when you're doing practice takeoffs and landings. Those are all designed to, to almost be a distraction. Can you maintain heading altitude? Airspeed, meaning airspeed is like your energy, like are you going to stall? Is the wing going to stall? and still kind of keep an equidistant and fly these legs in the pattern. 
Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail. I think everybody kind of probably knows mostly what the legs are talking about or they can look it up. But it's a distraction to see can you safely fly the airplane while looking out the window at the same time? Can you keep your scan going so you're kind of juggling all of those balls? And and in the traffic pattern, it is very common to get too slow with you know an uncoordinated flight condition, meaning if you look at your turn coordinator, the inclinometer or the ball is out to one side or the other. And that means you're uncoordinated. So if you were to have a low-speed event, like a stall, you would be in a really good situation to have a spin. Well, it's not uncommon to lose 1,000 feet of altitude in one rotation of a spin. So traffic pattern altitude is typically 1,000 feet, right? So you can do the math there, and that's why when you look at spin accidents, the airplanes are always pointed away from the runway. Because you, you're doing a spin and you lose a thousand feet in one spiral, so that's that's why it's a special emphasis area, and that's why you know they're asking the question. So recovering from a spin, and I'm getting back to the point here. The first step is always power to idle. Now you don't have much time to react, so um, hopefully that this has been covered enough. You're not a lot of airplanes you can't even practice it anymore, so all you can do is really regurgitate and use rote memory to, to kind of regurgitate the uh, facts here by the numbers. Power to idle, neutralize the controls or neutralize the ailerons, and then you're going to press rudder di- opposite the direction of rotation. That's a lot to happen in a very short amount of time when, you, when you've already, when the spin has already started. You had a lot going on, and it's not, not looking really good for your prognosis, uh, surviving it, uh, a low-speed event in the traffic pattern just due to the high number of turns you're doing in a small at a relatively low airspeed and kind of a small footprint. You know, you're just doing if you're just doing takeoffs and landings, laps in the pattern, you're doing a lot of turns, slow speeds, and you're distracted. You're looking out the window, focusing more on that runway you're trying to land on than you are uh maybe some of the other metrics like your airspeed when you're in your coordination. Wouldn't a stall warning typically go off before you enter to spin? Or no, it, I mean it. It would. It yeah. I mean it would. Yep. Because the stall warning is always based on an angle of attack, and that's that's what stalls are all about. So you know we talk about stalls and stall you, speed. You have to based on you in order to enter a spin. You have to stall the airplane, right? Yes. The airplane, the wing has to be stalled in order to spin. So, and that's one thing that a lot of people don't think about is a very low. G maneuver. It's not. It's not stressful on the airplane. The wing is stalled. You just hard to get out. Can't hurt the airplane. Well, I wouldn't even necessarily say it's hard to get out of a lot of like a one seventy two now or Archer Warrior. They're very hard to get into a spin. They're very, and that's obviously is good. You know, they make it you know hard to spin and easy to recover. You can almost just release the controls, which is why that is kind of step number two. Get that power to idle, neutralize the controls. And in most modern day airplanes, it's going to recover itself. The only issue in the pattern, why it's so dangerous, is that you don't have that much altitude to play with. So you have to recognize quickly and and get out of it. You know, and then if you recognize it early enough, you know, you can just get that nose down, and obviously that's going to get, you know, air and lower the angle attack, and that wing 
that was more stalled to kind of induce that spin, that's going to recover and you're going to be good. Just get that nose down. But you always have to have altitude to play with. And in the pattern, sometimes that's tough. That's tough to do, depending on when, you know, when it happens in the pattern. But I'm surprised you don't need to do that awareness training for like a private. Like they don't require you yeah. learn it until you CFI. Like you can get a commercial Demonstrate it. going through it. Yeah. You're going to learn it. But yeah. But yeah, not demonstrate it. Right. 100%. Yeah, that's an we excellent do. point. Don guess, demonstrated it with us during our private, which is nice. We did yeah. it several times. Right. And that is a huge, what a huge leg up. But half the trainers now, you can't even do it in them. Like, it's not legal to do. All you can do is talk about it. Yeah, well, you know? um, I remember when we were doing it, not when we were doing it, after we got our privates, they changed the law. There was an airworthiness directive for the 150s right, that you had to... Right. You had to make some Scott. You would know more about that. What's that? The, the airworthiness directive. Like when we were doing our private. Oh yeah. Well, we could, we could do spins. We could do spins. We can't now. Yeah. Unless you put there's something you have to do to the uh, the rudder horn. Uh, yeah. It's like so a different we, bolts or check the different bolts, bolts or different brackets bolts. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or you could either put that on, or you could put a placard in the in the cockpit that said not approved for spin. So I just did that. But yeah. Uh, yeah. But prior to prior to that happening though, Don would do spins with us in our private. Did, did, how, how often did you do them with him? Cause I, I only did it once. I think I did it twice. Cause he, he said they're not really, he said it's not really good aircraft to do spins in. It doesn't. It, I don't know if it's good to demonstrate it. It's, He's, it doesn't really get in fully into a spin. The yeah, 150. yeah. And he said it. It's kind of like a partial spin, and then it goes right out of it. Yeah, he said it's not. He said he doesn't really like doing them in 150s. I remember him saying that. He said we'll do one just because, but I think I got him to do it twice. But maybe yeah. he trusted my 150 a little bit more. It was newer. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. 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 It's. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't enjoy doing them. I haven't done them enough to enjoy it. I mean, you spend most of your career trying not to stall an airplane when you don't want to. So I don't know. I've never, never been into them. I rather, you know, always focus on recovering at the first sign of a stall. That's going to save a lot. I mean, yeah, showing you what can result, but it doesn't give you a good sense for. I don't know. You start a maneuver from 4,000 feet. You don't get the sense of imminent death, you know, to really prove the point. You get the uncomfortable aspect. Like, oh, yeah, I almost kind of felt like I was going inverted there for a second, and now I'm pointed straight at the ground. But that's that's what you get out of it. You don't realize that in one rotation, you're going to lose 1,000 feet. And if you're at 1,000 feet, that's the ground, and you're done. You know, you're a smoking hole in the ground, which is the point. So, I rather, you know, really work on the low speed awareness cues. Like Scott, that was the first thing Scott brought up is what about the stall warning horn? Where's right. that have this whole time you let this situation? Yeah, I mean, unfold. if you unless your stall warning fails, I feel like that should probably prevent you from going into a spin. The only thing like think about like a one forty or a J three cub, there's no stall warning. So well, there's the buffet. Yeah. yeah. There's the buffet. I see. Yeah, I feel like you. I I haven't flown. Obviously, I haven't flown a lot of different aircraft, but you, for the most part, you. If you're familiar with the aircraft at all, like you know when it's about to stall. 
So the only thing, the only thing I would say, and I agree with you hundred percent when things are pretty well, like when it stalls kind of in a more conventional type way, but when you're doing something like an accelerated stall or where you're, you know, you have plenty of airspeed and you just yank on it and you, you know, change the angle of attack enough to, you know, pass the critical angle of attack that it kind of like does like almost like a snap. Yeah. Like a, I don't know how to describe it. I'm sure there is a word or whatever. Or it goes a phrase, over quick. Yeah, it goes over quick. I mean, it's yeah. just like instantaneous. Like, oh, we're flying fine. We're doing this really cool. We look like cowboys. It's a lot of fun. And okay, I just exceeded the critical angle of attack. And now my wing stalled. I'm going to spin. You know what I mean? That and it can like it's like a snap snap roll type concept. You know, except you didn't do it. You don't know when it's going to let. Yeah, go, I'm, I'm sure there's some aircrafts are more prone to spins than others. I just the I have most of my time obviously in 150, but I don't feel like it's that it's it doesn't I I don't know I've just never it's never like started to enter a spin on me and we've done all kinds of stupid stuff you know right right but it's easy like something we take for granted in small airplanes I've never gotten into a stall or a spin that I didn't mean to but we take for granted if you get into like let's say um a Cessna 185 that's loaded to the gills, full fuel, full of bags, full of people, and it's it's hot out, and you know we're landing a short strip, so we're doing this ultra slow, right on the ragged edge, you know, base to final, and that's where that's where it matters. You know, if you're straight and level, it's not likely. Yeah, you may stall, but the nose is going to drop straight. Right. And so then, yep. you know, the, if the nose drops straight ahead, you're good. You're just going to, you know, w- both wings are going to stall at roughly the same time. You're going to, the nose is going to drop if you have it loaded correctly. That's a center of gravity thing. That's why we calculate that so that we always know the nose. If we're loaded within the CG envelope, the manufacturer set, that nose is always going to drop. And that means you're always going to restore the airflow over the wings and break that stall. Hopefully, you have altitude for this all to happen. But if you do, and you know the airplane will automatically basically recover itself. You will have to do some follow-up steps, but you should be pretty safe. But that's if you're that's if you're straight. So if you're already established on final, that's the worst thing that will happen. Hopefully, you have altitude to play with, and you'll be fine. But if you're concentrated on landing on this, maybe this grass strip or this sandbar or whatever that maybe you shouldn't even be going to loaded the way you are, but you are, you're, you're a good pilot. You've been there a billion times before. So you're doing this downwind base and final. So you're going from base. So that's your, your 90 degree angle to your final approach course here. You're doing this turn and you're kind of looking out the left window. If you're doing a left pattern, which is always easier because the pilot sit on the left seat in an airplane, you're doing this, this banking left turn and if you're paying more attention to the runway and you kind of where you are on your glide path to the runway, clearing the trees at the approach end, all those sorts of things, if you're looking out there, yeah, you're kind of dropping the ball on what you're looking at inside as far as airspeed and your coordination, meaning where that inclinometer is in your turn coordinator, which is a, a uh, measurement of, of, of – um, where that where that nose is going to drop? If the ball is in the center, so you have two luber lines. If the ball is in the center, in between those two luber lines, which is kind of your your your, that means the nose is going to drop straight ahead. If it's all wherever that ball is, is where that nose is going to drop to, basically. So, 
what what you want to do is keep the ball centered. But if you are looking at the airport to line up better and you're playing the wind and whatever other variables, you're not you're distracted from what's going on with the actual airplane as far as coordination and airspeed. And that's why they say that that base that base to final turn is one of the most dangerous maneuvers in all of aviation because that's where all these stall spin events happen in the pattern. All you need to do is stall one wing and be uncoordinated and you're doing a spin and, and ch- you're not at a thousand feet. Then you're not a thousand. You're not at a thousand feet when you're doing that base to final turn more often than not. So you have nothing to play with. You have to recognize instantly the buffet and, and be on it to, to recover and, and, and live. So you, um, correct me if I'm wrong. If you're coordinated, the airplane shouldn't spin, right? If the ball's yeah, that nose will drop straight ahead. That nose will yeah. drop straight ahead, and you'll return to the airplane. Will almost as long as you're loaded within CG, the the manufacturer's specified CG, that nose will drop straight ahead. Even if you're in a steep you, turn, as long as you're coordinated, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, we keep it coordinated. That is that is something you know that that. It can't be understated in these, you know, high power piston engines or even low power piston engine airplanes, single engine piston airplanes. Um, well, I shouldn't, I don't even know why I said piston. I meant single engine uh, airplanes. You're always, you know, putting that right rudder in to counteract, you know, all the different turning tendon, the left turning tendencies. Uh, and you get the perfect example is that 185 ton of power, a ton of left turning extra left turning tendency with engine torque and P factor and all these different things that we can talk about at another time. And you're going to always be using that right rudder, very little left rudder, like ever <laughs> you're, you're going to have an overdeveloped right thigh for sure. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's just a characteristic of single engine airplanes. So, I mean, we can talk about the elements why, but that's, that's, I think that's another, that's another lesson, but the bottom line, Keep that ball in the center. So that's going to take more right rudder. I will make a note for left turning tendencies episode in the 2021 season. I think that, I think that's a good, I mean, I think that's probably a good one because yeah. that brings you into, you know, tailwheel stuff and how that's different and when that would be different and why and blah, blah, blah. But we'll save that for next year. Yeah, um, for, sure. for sure. So we're doing, so I think that wraps, I think we covered that one. That was the second one, right? Out of 72. No, that's three. Three out of okay, 72. so we're three and a seventy-two. All right. Yeah, I mean, some of these I can, you know, probably blast through, but I, I, I want, I want more. Uh, no, 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 no. Let's not, right. let's not blast through anything. We're just, we'll okay. go until Scott falls asleep, and then, uh, okay. we'll just, we'll just cut it off wherever we are. And if the audience wants more and demands more, maybe we'll continue. Um, okay. Before we go to um, item four, good. Um, restroom break. I'm, I'm on board with that. All right. I don't have to pee. Oh, well, right. yeah, you're going to need to pee when it's less opportune. I know, but it's cold outside. I don't feel like going out there. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm at the shop. There's no bathroom here. All right. Number four. What do we got, Mr. Griffin? Collision avoidance. And I know we've talked about that with uh, clearing turns. Kind of all part of the deal. Um, but some of the lesser known things, and I know, I think we've talked about it kind of maybe in passing with, um, 
um, you know, use of aircraft flights. But I don't know that it was kind of maybe um, hit upon as strongly as, as as I would like it for for it to be because, um, in the 150 we have what do we have in terms of landing lights or like um what like yeah lights forward forward lights what we got we've got the two taxi da- light and a land taxi and landing depending on the year they're either on the wing or in the front cowling we got the red and green wingtip lights we've got the all-round red beacon or is that that's a white was a red beacon yeah the rearward facing red light on the tip of the rudder and is that a white light yes you're right that is a white light right yeah right okay that's it right right yeah, I mean that's all I can think of. I mean, maybe maybe some like later models have strobes, but it's not required. You know, we need we need you know a bare minimum just from like a certification standpoint. You need um your your navigation lights or you know your position lights. So green on the right, red on the left. White needs to be visible only from the rear, and then an anti-collision light source, a red or white anti-collision light source. Um, so. In terms of collision avoidance, uh, obviously the anti-collision light, that makes sense that that should be on. And there's two different types of anti-collision lights. You have a beacon, like you mentioned, and you have strobes. In a perfect world, every airplane would have their three white strobe lights, which is a, a much shorter pulse, uh, one on each wingtip and then one rearward facing. So you have 360 degrees of visibility from the the white uh, pulse, a very short pulse. The beacon tends to be a little bit more of a pause. So if you're thinking Morse code, it'd be more of a dash than dot if you were to think of it that way. So the 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 beacon would be more of a of a dash, and that would be red only. Now older airplanes, you got to kind of you know d- deal with what you have. The old ones are almost- the rotating beacons. Yeah, which seems like an awful lot of moving right. parts and, and weight to me. Yeah. You know, now everything's yeah, People LED, still want them, though. Know. I've sold them things on eBay. I sold a couple of them for like almost 200 bucks a piece. Well, why would you make the conversion? I mean, I wonder what the conversion, if you were to go to like an LED, well, you know, now what would that cost? Right. I, I don't know. I was surprised because a couple of, well, would it cost thousands, I guess? Maybe. A thousand? Yeah. Oh, I bet. I was just kind of surprised because I what, what started for? out a couple what of these. Uh, they were on a 175, two 175s and a 172 that I parted out. And they all, the, all three of them had rotating beacons, and I sold them anywhere from, I think, 160 to $220 a piece. And, and some people may just want to stay, you know, like authentic. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm cool with that too. I'm an LED. I'm an LED guy. It's it's lighter. You don't need any like like with the strobes or any beacon function. You don't need any like you know inline like flash pack things for timing. Well, maybe you need some for timing, but yeah, it's probably power. something small. Yeah. But, well, yeah, but you used to have need them for power. You needed like a capacitor, right. like box, to supply enough power for. You well, know, I mean these the these. The rotating beacons have an extra motor up there that literally spins the thing oh, around. Yeah, you know, yeah, they're, they're heavy. Why can't you? Just, yeah, why can't you just have two sides to a beacon that alternate, or just one 
360 degree light that you can see from all directions that goes right. That's what we've done on the 150 that I fly. We've made a, a conversion to a beacon, just a single tail mounted beacon. It's red on the front and white on the back red because you don't want white coming forward. If you can help it because that would destroy some of your night vision. Red is much less likely. It has to be much brighter to really affect your night vision. Which is why if you have like a, a super cool, you know, pilot pen or a pen light, uh, if the red function is much better for reading maps at night. So aviation red and white, aviation red or white, whatever you want to look at it. In a perfect world, you have your three wing uh, uh, strobe lights and then a beacon. Beacon would be for the ground use. It's all red, should be all red, ideally. And then for in flight or, you know, shortly before you take off. Um, and and then might as well talk about it now that is a memory that we do you know kind of at the professional level when we have all these cool lights and switches and stuff switch position for us uh is 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 a big deal for memory aids um trying to be professional so cleared for takeoff is when you're going to turn on all your exterior lights so when you take the runway so a lot of operations we do at bigger airports you're going to hear the the phrase you know learjet so and so line up and wait so that is our cue to cross the hold the hold short line and line up on the runway for takeoff. And in that situation, we will have our, our beacon would already be on, our navigation, if it was nighttime, our beacon would already be on, our navigation lights would already be on, our landing and taxi lights would already be on. Those would be on. Then when we hear cleared for takeoff, that is when we do our final switches, which is basically, you know, um, to the strobe function. In ours, it, it can get goofy, but that, that's pretty much the way it should be. And the reason you want to wait until you turn that strobe on, again, switch position. And two, you want to wait so that if there's aircraft behind you about to take off right behind you, um, you're not going to blind them with those really bright lights at night, the strobes. So a couple different things. There's kind of like, you know, like an etiquette function of waiting to, to, to the last minute, basically turn the strobes on. And there's also the memory aid f- function. So when you hear clear for takeoff, strobes come on and, you know, there you go. Um, I think we've beat the actual lights in the airplane. Good enough. Unless you guys had any questions or something on the lights. That's all I had. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to it and there's a lot, a lot of uses there, but we didn't even actually cover the thing. Collision avoidance. Is, is something that we've talked about operation lights on. So that's landing lights on below 10,000 feet above mean sea level or within 10 miles, uh, nautical miles of an airport. It's kind of the see and avoid concept, um, be seen. So the light up everything that you can um, with respect to maybe any switch position, you know, uh, SOP, standard operating procedures that you have for your company or your flight school or what limitations you have with your airplane. Um, Light up the aircraft as best you can. Um, you know, at night on a runway, we've talked about this before. Like we've talked about Lantana, you know, you have a lot of people using different runways and all kinds of stuff. Be as visible as you can. Look around as much as you can within reason. Um, um, uh, you know, the FAA wants you to be looking outside 90% of the time, which is why, as I previously stated, there's, how many of these things are ground reference news? You have a rectangular course, turns around a point, S turns across the road, and then the actual traffic pattern. So you have four things basically designed to distract you from flying the airplane. And so now 
an, the, the the fifth, maybe one of the more important things that could kill you, one of the easiest, is other traffic in the area. If you're down in Florida, how busy is, is it flying down there, you know, in a training environment? That's crazy. It's off the chart. You yeah. got over the Everglades, and it's like these designated training areas, and there's like 20 other planes in the same little area all trying to do maneuvers and ground reference maneuvers. It's a nuthouse. And that... That like makes like that. I would be concerned about that. You know, like I would. I I don't know how I would do that. That's what I've mentioned this in a past episode. Um, when you're doing flight training and when you're actually just flying, once you've already certified, you need to be clearing, scanning for other traffic. And in Ohio, there's areas where we fly up there where you never see anybody. You go years and years and years. And if you see another plane, it's like a, you know, you think about it, like you put it in your logbook as a note. Oh, saw another plane today. That hasn't happened in four years. Like, you know, depending on what areas you're flying in. Now, Lake yeah. Erie Islands gets a little busier. Yeah, you can go but south of the Turnpike, all, you don't see a whole lot. Yeah. So you go from that environment, you got to be really vigilant to stay on it. Like, right. and versus down in Florida you get that gratification of seeing another airplane and being rewarded for doing your scan and avoiding somebody like regularly. Right, so it's almost, right. it's almost easier to stay on this and stay diligent about it in, in an environment like Southern Florida, or uh, I've never flown there, but Southern California I've heard is similar. Um, because if you, you constantly are getting reaffirmed that yes, this is a good idea that I am scanning because you're always seeing other aircraft. You're like, okay, I got to avoid that guy, avoid that guy. Where right. it, when you're flying in rural areas, like out West somewhere, you know, we, I'm sure it's similar to Ohio. You just, you know, you go a long time, a lot of hours and you never see anybody. That's right. almost more difficult to, to stay vigilant in those kind of environments than down where it's constantly, you like have to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, that's the best way to. Yeah, like it's like a reward. But and, and I mean, it's it's the, the other aircraft that are operating in the same space as you. I mean, they're literally trying to occupy the same space as you. So it's it's like the equivalent of drive defensively, basically, yeah. for yep. for flying. You know, and and it and it's just another way of. Well, I don't want to say like maybe a distraction in that case, but. It is another thing you need to be aware of being maybe in tune with the airplane, keeping your scan going because you can't just fly the airplane and you can't just look outside. Yeah. I mean, you can feel the ragged edges if you're about to stall. Yes. I would agree with that. Probably if you're, you know, pretty in tune with the airplane, you feel the buffet, the aerodynamic buffet, and you know, you're getting slow. See to your pants, I feeling, but that's not practical. You know, you want to be 120 knots indicated airspeed and you want to maintain your altitude within a reasonable margin of a couple hundred feet or a hundred feet or, well, that sounded terrible when I said a couple hundred feet, a hundred feet, 20 feet, 50 feet, whatever it is, keep it within a reasonable close to your altitude. That's, that's, that's realistic. But the FAA wants you to be looking outside 90% of the time. So that's like, Looking outside a lot, scanning, looking both ways, having whoever's flying with you, riding with you, looking outside as well, and then you take an occasional glance inside, not the other way around. 
And you can't just hone on your altitude and take an occasional glance outside. That's not going to do you any good. So, I mean, that, that's collision avoidance. So keep your lights on. Be mindful of kind of maybe how those the, the positions or the um, functions of those lights may be perceived by other craft. And we can make a whole other episode about that by the sounds of things. But um, light it up as best you can when you're operating new air, near other aircraft or where there may be other aircraft. Um, look outside 90% of the time. That's about pretty much all I got on on that. Um, how do you can, take we, how do you take it to the check ride though? Like what is the from a DE's looking for? Well, and I guess that would be air, that would be aircraft lights. So you know when you're about to start up the engine, um, typically in trainers you're going to have nav lights on or position lights on all the time. When the battery comes on, the position lights are probably in the position where they would come on as well. Sometimes, like we most of the time function with our navigation or position lights off because that is tied into certain indicators on the inside of the airplane and that puts them automatically in like a night mode where they are much more dim they perceive that if your navigation lights or position lights come on that it's nighttime and dark out so it's dark in there which means some of the lights that don't have any other control or rheostat type function associated with them where you can't dim them manually it automatically dims them when you turn the position lights on. So we won't, even during the day, which I don't like this, but even during the day, we can't have the position lights on. So because of that. Yeah. So, I mean, there'd be like a certain indicator that, that, you know, is bright, full bright during the day and dim one, you know, it's, it's either bright or dim. There's no controlling the variability of that. So it's bright during the day with the position lights off. It's dim at night when those position lights comes on. So if it's if it's daytime, you need to see that that's indicating. So you have to have the position lights off for to for the display on that instrument to be bright enough for you to be able to read it. Like if it's a digital number, if that makes any sense, if anybody can can picture that at all. So, but in in most trainer, I assume um, that the position lights will be on when the battery comes on. If not. Um, you you know probably exactly what I'm talking about, and there's a reason why the position lights are off during the day. So position lights are probably on, or what you know what I'm saying, um, during the day before startup. So you'll you'll run whatever checklist you know your pre takeoff checklist or your pre start checklist, and then right before you start, you're going to turn your beacon on, and that kind of signifies to any ground crew or anybody around. That your so beacon is typically, you know, if you're at a big 141 flight school or something like that, the beacon is just your red, you know, uh, beacon. So it's going to be more like a dash. If you're talking Morse code terms, be more of a dash. So it's a little bit, so it's like it's on for, you know, a 1 1000 and then off, where a strobe is on, off, on, off, on, off. That'd be more of a strobe type, type pulse. But, um, uh, so that'd be your red beacon. That would be on right before start. And a lot of people yell clear clear prop or clear whatever. And that's just a holdover. I'm more in favor of don't look like an idiot and just look. Um, but that's just me. Obviously, to yell probably is more safe and more conservative. What do you guys think about that? That's a perfect point. I, I That, is, I a, that is a thing for me. I never did it. I always yelled. Never did it. Yeah. Still don't do it. Do you? I'm, but Scott, you backed it up by looking well, a little bit more. Intently. No, nope. You just don't care. I actually put my Shop head. I actually put my head down 
so that I don't see wow. anything. Wow. Well, there is always that. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I do look, but I, I'm, it's not, I mean, if I was at a bigger airport, I might yell a more uh, populated area. But when I see most guys yell, they yell literally like a half a second before they start. So like if somebody were to hear it, they wouldn't even have time to move out of the way. They're, yeah, that's Most true. guys yell it as they're hitting the starter. Clear. 100%. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like yeah. It's just a habit, but it's, it's not doing any good. I don't know. I that's a hundred percent. That's a just, great point. I'm on at this point where, where my hangar is like, it's on my own private property. I taxi to the runway from my own airport or my own property. So it's like, there's nobody there. I don't know. I just, I just don't, I don't look, I don't know. You, you, well, if your dog, you have a, you have a dog. Well, I don't think my dog might be under there. I don't think my dog's going to respond to clear. That's clear, true. Clear prop. It's probably going to make him come towards the plane if I yell something. Yeah. So. Yeah. Speaking I'm not of a your, fan. I say. Speaking just of your dog, is that dog treat thing been firing this whole episode, shooting out treats? No, it's a something's sleep. making a tapping noise. That's my chair. It makes a creaking noise every time I move. There's not much oh, I can do about that. Okay. We'll move on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a non non yell out the window kind of guy. I'm kind of use your head, look around, clear the area if you will, and then beacon on, start the engine. Yeah. What, what kind of pause do you give between yelling clear and hitting the starter, Rob? Me? I usually do give a pause. This is something I do more of. It's, um, I don't know how to describe it. Please try. If, I'm very anxious no, to hear. If nobody's around, I just, I just won't. But if how like, do you know nobody's around though? Well, like I'm not doing it to like clear somebody, like some hobo hiding under the cowling since I pre-flighted it. Uh -huh. um, I'm doing it more so if there's other pilots around who I just feel like it's like wearing a mask like uh -huh. in 2020. Yeah, go I on. don't really wear a mask unless there's other people around that I feel like they'd be more comfortable if I was wearing a mask and then I'll just out of politeness, I'll wear the mask. It's kind of like that with clear prop. There's other pilots around that like if I just started up and I feel like if I didn't yell it, they'd be like, oh, man, that guy's just crazy. I'll just you yell it. On. Yeah, I, I, when it was my own plane, I just left it on. It was never off. So. so I guess the only thing is, so I would like everything I try to think about or convey is more about what are you always going to be able to do? Me? I can't do that from the airplanes I fly now. I've been able to do that for years. So what is the justification for me doing it in that airplane? Yeah, there is a prop swinging around out there. I get that. I get that. There's, you know, just a swinging axe out in the out out there. I understand. But you're not going to always be able to yell clear or clear prop in anything you're flying. So I get the only thing if I, if I can't if I if it's not something that I can learn and carry with me through my flying career, 
I try to just it, maybe I'm making it more complicated instead of simplistic. In my view, though, that's making it more simplistic. If I can't teach it to a student, and if they go on to fly an F sixteen, if they can't, st- if it doesn't still hold true, why am I teaching it that way? Well, that's that, that, What's that? You disagree? Well, and that's and that's I, no. Good. I said I, I said I don't disagree. Oh. I'm not saying obviously that's another layer yeah, well, of Lee, when you when you start a jet, what do you yell out the window? Nothing. There's no window to yell out of. Well then maybe you, you shouldn't maybe you shouldn't be starting it at you all. You shout man. at the window though, don't you? Shout out the window. Yeah, I mouth it. I mouth it. You bang now, on the grand- window. You just hit it, bang on it. Just wave your hand around. Wildly. I feel like this should be like an initiation thing you do as a captain when like a new FO first flies with you. Oh, dude. You should just like on. get all, yes. You should just yes. get like all ticked off like if they start to like roll the like have them roll the airplane like them first they never saw you do it and then just like go off that they they didn't they didn't yell clear Clear turban and just like if do it dead serious and just see what they say i wish i would have known that at the airlines because it's (laughs) not the same because we have a door you know we had a door there now we don't have a door that's just open to the back and it's you know the richest people you'll ever meet type thing back there. So yeah, I don't want to feel like that. Well, maybe not you, but richest people I'll ever meet anyhow. But it's, (laughs) I, I I wish I would have known that at the air or thought about that at the airlines. That would have been so funny because the FOs always start the engines at at the airlines. The at least the airline I worked at, well, both airlines, the first officer always started the engines. That'd be great. Every time it would have been perfect. It's like, dude, you didn't yell clear prop. Did you see what yell, he said? You didn't yell clear fan. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. Hey, I've seen videos of people getting sucked into jet engines before. So you, before you I've pull seen, it up. I've seen that too. Well, and that's another thing you, you, we, you bring up. So we are basically told or allowed to start 90% of the time. We have a ground crew that's that's out there marshalling us because remember we're connected to a ground power unit that is you know so we're not starting the engines off the batteries, unlike a a, a propeller driven airplane, a piston engine airplane. Uh, that's what I'm a piston engine airplane. It is a ton of draw on the batteries to start a turbine airplane. Huge huge considerations. You have voltage range limitations for for battery start. All kinds of stuff. It's a huge drain on them. So a lot of times we're connected to what's called a ground power unit. And that basically just powers the basically supersedes the batteries. So you're not drawing on batteries to start the engines. You're drawing off the GPU. And so you have ground crew out there that will then need to disconnect that from the airplane. So you're not just starting out there willy nilly like your 172. Like in your 172, you got there, you you pull the chalks or you put them behind the wheel so you can just taxi straight away you don't you're not doing any of that you have a ground crew member out there that you're asking them if they want to start one which is your left side or two which is your right side um you're you're at, you're signaling those out the window to them and they're you know telling you good on two they'll give you some you know their signals they do and i don't know all of them anyways but i mean i'll know when i see it but they'll tell you what you can do basically so I, that does kind of obviously alleviate some of the clear prop mentality. But again, it it's, happens often enough to make my previous point valid that we'll, we will not have any ground crew around. We'll go out to the airplane. We won't have a GPU. 
we'll put the chocks in behind just like your 172 days. We'll put those chocks in behind or Piper Warrior days, I would say, because they're much better than 172s. 172 you put the chocks, days. You were right well, the first time. No, okay. So you put the chocks behind the wheel and then you, you would taxi away. So we are left to our own devices often enough that we haven't forgotten. We still need to clear the area. So again, like my previous point, if I can't yell clear prop out the window of a jet, then I don't want to start the bad habit of letting them think that that yelling clear prop is going to uh, you know, alleviate their need to clear the area visually before they start the engine. I've never thought about this. We, we brought this conversation up in a previous episode. I can't remember which episode it was, so I'm not even going to try to remember and say it, but it doesn't matter. Now I look at this as something I do that's almost like a bad habit. Because it is. It, it really is. I feel like it's pointless. What, yelling clear you prop? Clear prop? Yes. Yeah, it is pointless. Yelling clear prop is maybe... I understand the point. It is another layer of potential... You know, um, it's maybe sending the message, and I get that when you're kind of in the visible area of other pilots, you know, maybe pre-flighting their airplane right next to where you are. I get that. I 100% get that. I don't have an answer answer for for that until you get in the FBO and you got to argue about it. Whenever in I that case, I'm willing yell to have that every day of the week. What's that? Whenever I see somebody yell it, I just think, why are they yelling it out the window? Like, just be quiet. It's, it's it's literally it's just a habit. I think I, I know it's a habit. I know I, it's a bad it, habit. It, it, what, you I, Don never told us to do that, did he? I don't remember. I feel like I did it. For, I I can't remember him telling us to do that. But I, somehow I your, ended up doing your that. Your previous so he, partner did they do it? Uh, There's no way. I I don't know. I want to have them on. Before, I'm trying to get at least the son or the dad or both on before the end of the year, we're at what 47 right now. So I don't know if that's going to happen. So maybe yeah, it's next it year. Tight. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if the angles did, did or not. I don't, I, don't, know. I don't know if, if Don maybe had you do it and didn't have me do it just because none of the people I, Don was your first instructor, right? Yes. Okay. See, I had had, a couple instructors before him and maybe he just figured like, well, they didn't have him do it. So I'm not going to make him do it. And well, knowing you said he probably told you to do it and you're like, um, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody else told me to yeah. do that. So I'm not going to start. Well, I started it at Sandusky. No, they didn't have, and we don't, it. we never yelled it. No, we didn't yell. Yeah. It. Nobody there had me do it. Do you know how often you, I mean, come on. I, you, I, it's so impractical to be yelling that for every start. Yeah, and, and, but the, that's a high volume of starts. That's a high volume of starts. It's a different type of operation. I'm not saying that that would be a reason enough to not do it. But again, I I don't want it to be yell it all you want, and I'm cool with that. But don't let that be a you know a filler for you visually taking the time to clear the area. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Say it if you want. I'm not going to make fun of you if you say it and then and clear the area as well. But don't think that that is going to cover your bases by just yelling it while you look down to press the button or turn the key like you were saying, Scott. Your ba- people are basically doing it simultaneously. 
and that's not that doesn't that doesn't serve the purpose of yelling. At Most people I see do it do it simultaneously, which is pointless. Pointless, hundred percent. And that's because they're just doing it out of habit. Yeah. They're not doing yeah. it actually. They're doing it because they right. think they and think so they're that's why we're talking about yeah. this. Yeah, that's why we're talking about this. You know, I want to see a reason for why you're doing things. I'm a minimalist when it comes to all this stuff. I don't, I mean, I don't want to say that I try and reinvent the wheel, but I, I try to, I feel like the wheel has been made square. Like it was square, went to round, now back to square. Let's keep it round. So I feel like I need to kind of come backwards. That's honestly kind of how I feel about some of this stuff. Let's not just make up stuff to do just to do it. It doesn't make you look cool, and it doesn't save anybody's life. You looking out the window and making sure there's nobody around. Yeah, you can't see through the cowling to see who might be right there underneath your your cowling to be pulling chalks. I agree with that. But, you know, be heads up for a little bit and clear the area. I mean, if they were down there, I mean, with your beacon on, chop them up. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Um. I would say in, in most, like, if you suspect for some reason on this startup, there might be someone pulling your chalks, maybe yell it. But I feel like you should just have more situational awareness of what's going on around you. That even though you, can't, even though you can't see through the cowling, you should, you should know with pretty high certitude that there is nobody hiding under your cowling before you even turn your beacon on. And if they are, honestly, they they're getting what's they got coming to them. <laughs> I mean, don't that guy don't don't hide underneath the cowling of an aircraft. But and so that is another actually a really good point. We're uncovering a lot of um, gold here. I think don't chalk your nose tire. Right? Why are you chalking? There's so many reasons to not. Do, well, I mean, I guess I don't know how many reasons, but that's one. Well, yeah. Why, why do you want anybody to be grabbing something well, ever? And chalking, ch- chalking most single engine aircraft, the nose wheel does not have a lot of weight on it. So, like, if you're gonna, if like a, if it's gusty and windy, and you chalk the nose wheel, like that's it's gonna pop out of the chalk a lot easier than it is a main gear. So, just chalk one of the mains. Well, I mean, I appreciate you backing me up on the stance, but. Most of the weight is underneath the nose tire. No, it's not. Yes, it is. How do you no. steer with it on slush? That's where the motor is. It, the nose, I can lift the nose wheel up a lot easier than I can lift the main up. Guaranteed. Uh, I agree. That's a Cessna 150. Do that in a 172. Well, I'm just Why saying. do you think it stalls? Why do you think when it stalls, the nose drops? Well, okay, but... There's more note. Maybe okay. Maybe maybe on different aircraft, but on my 150, like I would say, 98 percent of on my 150. If I had to pick up one of the the three surface points by hand, I would just pick up the nose because it's it's lighter. I can pick the nose up. And I and I agree with you in your airplane. If there's people in the airplane, that's not the case anymore. No, I would I would say that's a bad rule of thumb because that. I can't think of any other airplane that applies to. Well, it is on the one. I'm sorry, Scott. I mean, we agree, but for different reasons. This on the 150. Well, no, 100, percent 100. I mean, I, I'm I'm with you. The way that center of gravity works in that airplane, 
you are right. It is very tail heavy for the most part. And everything else is pretty much not true. So whatever. Mostly don't chalk wrong. Your nose wheel. What's that, Rob? Just don't chalk your don't chalk the wheel next to your motor. So on a yeah. nose wheel for a single engine. Yeah, you know nobody's gonna. I mean, obviously we're. Well, we're I mean, you can if you're it. gonna pull the chocks before you get in the airplane. The only thing is, is what if you? There's, there's. We're lining up a lot of contingency things here. You need to be the one to pull the chalk or put the chalk behind the nose gear so that you can taxi away. That needs to happen. What if you're in a rush and you forget it? And then line service, you're in the airplane, line service forgets, and and they come out and they're doing it, and you didn't yell clear and all these. Well, things. then they so, deserve to get chopped. Well, I, you know, I, I pretty much agree with you, but I think, you know, <laughs> it should be common practice if you can chalk a mane, not the nose, and um, everybody's happier that way. I, I agree with you 100%. But I'm also trying to justify don't, don't why not to get a clear prop out the window. What? They just don't talk. Or don't chalk don't it, chalk at, all. it at all. You can do that. It's just, you ever heard of a like, parking brake and tie downs? Yeah, my parking brake well, doesn't work, but. It, it's disconnected. Yeah. In op. It's disconnected. Yeah. I was told to leave it disconnected. Well, it could be. Um, the next thing on the list here, uh, wake turbulence avoidance. So this is something you'll get asked about or you'll see on a knowledge test, a written test. And, and kind of the way the question is going to be, um, uh, basically, which aircraft creates the strongest wingtip vortices, which is kind of synonymous or you know interchangeably used with wake turbulence. And that's an airplane that's heavy, clean, meaning aerodynamically clean, meaning the flaps are in a you know a takeoff position or a you know uh, a level flight position or uh, you know a cruise a cruise flight position I should mean say and slow. So all of those three things meaning heavy meaning it's needing a lot uh, extra angle of attack. Um, which angle of attack, I always wanted to stress to my students, meaning the difference in pressure between the the uh, upper surface of the wing and the lower surface of the wing. Um, those two, the pressure gradient, that is going to kind of dictate the partially how strong the wingtip vortices are. Pressure gradient, that's going to dictate, obviously, how strong the flow from high pressure to low pressure, how strong it is. So... Um, that's how pressure flows from high to low, right? So it, the stronger that gradient is, the the stronger the vortice, the wingtip vortex or wingtip vortices are going to be. So heavy, then clean. So like I said, you know, aerodynamically clean. So your flaps are either in like more of a takeoff or a, a low setting. They're takeoff setting, which is minimal or clean completely up, you know, for cruise flight. So you're not getting any uh, added lift benefit from any you know lift devices so that would then put more reliance on the angle of attack concept like i previously talked about which leans more towards that pressure gradient which is going to have very strong or intense uh wingtip vortices and then slow which again is angle of attack if you need to fly a heavy airplane slow there's only one way to do that and that's use a lot of angle of attack to do it so all of those three things are putting emphasis on the gradient, the pressure gradient from the upper side of the wing, meaning low pressure, and the uh, lower side of the wing, meaning high pressure. Those two things are always going to try and you know meet each other, and the way they do that is that high pressure on the bottom 
rolling off that wingtip because if you think about it, and this is also talked about on the written at some point, the it kind of flows span wise. So it's a little, it's not, it's not straight back um, because you have that roll off the end of the wingtip. So it's going to create that vortex, that lateral vortex. Um, and, and so that kind of makes all of the airflow instead of going, you know, in line with the direction of flight, it actually is going to go a little bit, like quite a bit skew of that. It's going to go 70, 80 degrees skew. Well, maybe 70, 80 is a little excessive. 60 to 70 degrees skew to that because of how we you know what's happening at that wing tip. Uh, so it creates the, those vor, vor, the vortex, the vortices, it's called. So an aircraft, so uh, the way I have it described here, the aircraft generating the strongest wingtip vortices are aircraft that are heavy, clean, and slow. The wingtip vortices spiral outward and downward. So landing behind these aircraft, you want to touch down after their touchdown point. So you want them to land and transfer the lift or the weight of the aircraft from the wings to the wheels. And then when you're taking off behind these aircraft, you want to take off or lift off prior to their liftoff point because that's when they're going to transfer, you know, the inverse, uh, you're, they're going to transfer weight from the wheels to the wings. So you want to basically, and if you're in a smaller aircraft than them, if you're in a bigger airplane, it doesn't matter. You, you know, they need to worry about it, not you. But when we're talking general aviation airplanes, typically we're in a smaller aircraft than, you know, a military C-130 or a regional jet or any a commercial airliner. Um, and it can be very upsetting. We had this a lot, you know, when I was flying the airlines, you know, it'd be jammed in, you know, we're number 10 on final, but and we're in a CRJ 700, 900, 200, whatever. And we're about coming in behind an Airbus. Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to have a separated enough to uh, um, mitigate, you know, the the wake turbulence we would we would uh, experience. But it happened occasionally, and it is violent. If you hit it right, it is violent. It is eye opening what it can do to you in a split second. Um, so just keep that in mind. So if you're in an aircraft that is bigger than you, uh, you need to be mindful. You're in an aircraft there. that's bigger than you. Uh, I meant to say, if you're behind an aircraft, that's yeah, that makes more sense. sorry. If yeah. if you're in an airplane that's smaller than the aircraft, that's smaller than the airplane in front of you. Even if you're in an aircraft that's bigger than the airplane in front of you, you could still have an effect. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I, I would say I would say it's minimal. I've never. Uh-huh. I. Yeah, I mean, we you know we find a lot of these smaller Florida airports. What's where a, there is a lot of what's a training. good time like number of seconds or minutes or whatever let's say you're in a uh single engine cessna or piper or whatever and there's a there's a 737 taking off in front of you how long do you wait before you minutes how long minutes like how many minutes two three yeah Mm -hmm. what if atc what if atc says 30 seconds after they leave or or as soon as they leave the runway they clear unable Months. Yeah. Unable wake turbulence. And then you just kind of. And they know it. Yeah. And they know it. Yeah. So they might, you know, maybe be thinking something, but, um, and they, they have, they have guidance. Like, you know, they should tell you, you know, 
They should tell you to wait, but they might not. So There's so many things that just popped up right then. So this is something we come up with all the time. If you read in the aeronautical information manual, so in a turbojet aircraft, we're not doing run-ups at the end of the runway. So if you read the aeronautical information manual, it is specifically stated that a turbojet aircraft is assumed ready to take off when they meet the end of the runway. So if you're on a parallel taxiway and you're taxiing do, 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 down towards the takeoff runway, when you get there, you are assumed to be ready for takeoff. And so this is something we come up with all the time that we find ourselves just like the old general aviation days. You got to let air traffic control when you're ready to go or, or, or they're just taking too long, you know, but oftentimes you, you know, we'll get on the radio on tower frequency and we'll be like, Hey, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so we're, uh, we'll, we'll be, we're ready at the end or, you know, ready for takeoff or whatever, however, however, whoever says it, and they will immediately give you takeoff clearance, which leads me to believe that they were waiting for us to tell them we were ready, which is upsetting to me since in the aeronautical information manual, it specifically states that we are assumed to be ready yeah. when we get to the runway. But how that ties into your point is when we sometimes, when they forget to give us or when they don't give us takeoff clearance and we are so, it's so common for us to have to basically tell them that we're ready. And then they give us a, an immediate subsequent takeoff clearance. Sometimes we will tell them that we're ready and they will, you know, uh, stand by, you know, for wake turbulence avoidance. Some something that yeah. I mean, not like that at all. That was not clean or whatever. But they might, they might not though. I mean, they might. No, they don't have to. Like, they don't have to do that. That's just, no. Yeah. Well, and so if if you were to look at what's going on, look at what they're trying to protect you from. If like us in a Lear. We have so much climb performance. It is you can outclimb the turbulence, probably. Yes, we are way above it. So it it, it descends. It descends. It goes downwards. So that that's how that's how it goes. So if you have like if you're up at altitude, like in route, just in cruise flight, and you have something much bigger than you fly overhead of you, you know, and we're basically staggered a thousand feet from most of the flight levels uh, at cruise, um, most of them, and. If somebody crosses above you at a thousand feet above you, going the opposite direction or whatever, and they're bigger than you, you're going to experience some potentially uh, some some of it because it descends. If they're if you're above them, you're never going to feel anything from them. They may feel something from you, so it descends. So it goes downwards and right. outwards always. And so, um, if you can, if you're in an airplane that you can take out, take off out above their, their, their takeoff flight path, you're good. You'll never, you'll be none the wiser. Doesn't matter what took off in front of you. You know, it could be, you know, a three, a 380. It doesn't matter. So, um, if you can out climb it, if you're in a general aviation aircraft, you know, like a light twin, light piston, like single engine piston, it's not likely. You know, you're going you're to have to deal with it. The only advantage you have is that it will take you much less runway so you can get off the ground. And if you can do an early turn, you know, like to get on course or something like an early right yeah. or left turnout to get going where you're going instead of continuing straight out like they did, you can probably get away from it and not and so be completely. Let's say, let's say I'm get I'm cleared for takeoff, but a 737 just took off in front of me. And I say, I want to wait for wake turbulence or whatever. Yep. Yep. Then 
let's say I wait two minutes, do I just go ahead and take off or do I say, okay, I'm ready to take off now? They will immediately say cancel takeoff clearance, uh, hold short, you know, whatever your runway is and, you know, advise, advise ready for takeoff. Okay. Now they may kind of nudge you a little bit and be like, dude, it's blowing 30 knots from, you know, direct well, crosswind. If, well, if I'm in a that, 150, I ain't taking off in 30 knot crosswind. Okay. Okay. So that's a bad example. Okay. You get yeah. what I'm saying though. So, yeah. you know, yeah. 20 knots, 15 knots and, and which, so as the, that, that crosswind component uh, reduces, I would say, you know, keep your, you know, the, the, the time frame that you need to transpire for you to safely take off should extend. If yeah. you had 30 knots and, and you could take off in that airplane at 30 with a 30 knot crosswind, that's pretty much immediate. You you would be fine to take off immediate. Uh, if the airplane, if the airplane you were flying was okay with it, chances right. are they weren't taking off in that anyways, 30 knots, like in the CRJ 700, 27 knot max crosswind. So not much. Oh, if you think about yeah, it, yeah. we go flying the island. We go fly the island and that all day long back in the day. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, and, and now you can't do it in an airliner. It's really, really weird. They but won't. I mean, it's most, not capable of doing it. You're not just. You're no, just that's, that's the limitation. So if you were to. But it's like, capable say, of doing it. Well, technically, if you were to land and hold the center line, you would drag the wingtip. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, in, in like in 737s and stuff like that with those undermounted wing or undermounted engines. I think they're they're at least as restrictive as that, but that's why you have other runways. Yeah, you, you have other runways to pick on. To, you know, to take on, you know, come from the other direction. You know, come from a different runway, but um, or just aim for the upwind side of the runway and end up landing on the downwind side of the runway and don't exceed. You know, don't hit, the, don't drag the engine. But I mean, exceed the limitation, but don't drag the engine. Nobody's gonna know. Nobody's going to say anything, you know, but how likely is it? It's 90 degrees crosswind right? at whatever your limitation yeah. is. I, well, if I remember correctly, it was 27 knots. Most no, airports that you're going to be landing a larger airplane at have multiple runways to choose from. So yes, Cleveland is, is, is different. I mean, even Akron can't would be better than that, but yeah. Cleveland is one where it is where, yeah, there is a runway that you could use hundred percent. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, but they just don't use it very often. I'm sure there's other ones like that, but it's a shorter runway, isn't it? Cleveland, the one it is, but it's still plenty. Remember you're talking 30, 30, you picked that runway for a reason. So the assumption is that it helps your, your landing numbers enough that it makes sense. So bottom line, uh, back to the, the, uh, wake turbulence stuff. Um, if you can outperform them, out climb them, you're probably good. If there's crosswind, that's going to help get that wake turbulence away from the runway where you're that you're trying to use, whether it be takeoff or landing, uh, sooner. Use your best judgment. Be conservative because it can be catastrophic. If, if if you're in a 150 taking off behind an A320, and it's a like smooth, calm, not smooth, but calm day, perfectly calm. That's going to stay there for minutes. Yeah, and it, you you don't want to find how, out the hard. How way. big of an aircraft should I be concerned about in a 150? If I'm taking off behind you in a Learjet. How long do I got to wait? Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that's a big deal. You and so the your flight path, um, that's a big thing. You would go through our wake momentarily. 
Yeah. And you'll have altitude to work with too, because you're going to take off in much less distance than we do. So you're going to be at altitude. We're, yeah, when we finally lift off, we're going to outclimb you. So you're going to be several hundred feet, maybe 500 feet before you even intersect our flight yeah. path. If you didn't turn, you know, most, you know, 150, you know, like me, if I were to go take off 150, you know, out of a bigger airport, um, behind, you know, a Learjet, for example, I'd be comfortable doing an early turnout and getting on course. I mean, the, the objective as flying an airplane is, is get point B as quickly as possible. So continuing straight out for three miles doesn't do me any good. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it depends on what ATC will let you do. I remember one time obviously. I was flying out of Burke Lakefront and I took off behind a Pilatus, which obviously is not that big of an airplane, but like, I didn't really think about it. Because for the listeners, I've mostly flown off a grass strip, so you're not taking off behind anything bigger than a single-engine plane most of the time. Plus a single-engine Well, plane. I know, from a, like a small piston single-engine plane. You, <laughs> <I> know. Know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Like, Okay, oh, whatever. Yeah. I, I get it. But like, I didn't think about it at all until like I was on takeoff. Or I was on run, you know, I was starting to roll out for takeoff, and I'm like, Right behind that thing. Is there going to be any wake turbulence? There, there wasn't, but you know, there could have been, I suppose. There could have been, but remember, he's only got to create as much lift as the airplane weighs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know what the, I've never flown one. I think those are only around an eight or 9,000 pound airplane, which is a lot more than 150. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean, but, I suppose if maybe if I had taken off like, like, right behind him there might have been but obviously i waited for him to climb out for you know he was maybe a couple hundred feet in the air before i took off so it doesn't take much because remember they are slowly losing intensity every second after they've left the way yeah. that's one two the wind can blow them you know off of your flight path and in turns you know you turn early to avoid it or all kinds of stuff so there's there's a there's a lot going on there um, to, to think about, but err on the side of caution, you know, if, if you're, you know, doing operations at, at one of these, um, one of these airports where, you know, you could catch yourself behind, you know, a regional jet, you know, regional jets. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're not, you know, the most glamorous thing to go fly as a pilot, but remember they're 85,000 pounds, 85,000 pounds. So, you know, it, it, it's not nothing. I mean, I don't know what it's like to fly in behind one. I know what it's like to fly, be in one of them and fly behind an Airbus. And it's eye-opening, to say the least. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's strong enough. It kicks the autopilot off immediately and puts the airplane into a roll. Like, it's, it's the craziest thing. It's like the autopilot is doing a roll on its own. It's, hmm. it's, it's very odd. It's very odd, but... Um, that's that's that. So wake turbulence avoidance. Um, there's more to that. If there's more questions on that, send us an email. Whatever, right, guys? I mean, that's yes. And trend. we are hitting ten o'clock here, which means Scott is going to slowly start drifting off on us yep. if we don't wrap this up. Um, it is appropriate that the first time Lee got to choose a topic for an episode, well, he was forced to choose one. Um, he chose a, a topic that would turn into a 10 to 15 hour episode. Uh, right. we, do, we do long episodes, but not that long episodes. 
So if this interests you, if this piqued your curiosity and you would like us to continue this in a second part of this series for Lee to continue going through his master list of what what we're five into 72 what was it lee yep five into yeah 72 or 73 okay so maybe we'll do a few more on another episode if lee griffin gets five emails from fans requesting this episode uh to be made we will make the sequel to this um i doubt we could finish this this would be like a i don't know how many part series but if you would like this Send Lee an email. Say, uh, listen to, I believe this is going to be episode 47, if I'm incorrect. Um, Put whatever episode it actually is. Um, Just listen to episode 47 and would like you to make, continue that. And if Lee gets five, uh, we'll continue on. Does that sound good, Lee? Yeah, that's cool with me. Okay. And then uh, some uh, housekeeping items. We have a rating. Five star written rating, written review. Nice. Um, Says great show with two exclamation points uh, from Pilot Hunter V Mm. uh, or Pilot Hunter Five. Not sure. Yeah. Wow. And is this a pilot named Hunter or is this a guy hunting pilots? Um, Let's hope it's a guy named Hunter who's a pilot. Um, I have finally. Is it Hunter Biden? I have thoroughly enjoyed each episode as they are entertaining as well as educational. I am a student pilot, soon to be private pilot, and enjoy turning out or tuning out my boss at work with this show. Oh boy. I hope he doesn't hear me reading this review uh, next to your desk. Well, anyway, uh, however, this is where this is where it gets good. However, the EDM and various musical tracks that interlude and conclude each episode make me want to die. Would it kill you to play something country? Question mark. I look forward to flying Lake Erie one day in the light of this podcast. Great show. Keep up the good work. Um, EDM. It, um, I have so much to say. Music. I have so much to say in response. But yeah, go ahead, Rob. Electronic dance music. Lee is, Lee is gunning. Let me finish up my thoughts on this. Um, I actually probably 20% of my playlists are country, uh, on my, on my phone. Um, there's two reasons why you haven't heard country on this. One is country songs are not impossible, but more challenging to cut a, a good hook for bumpers. Uh, on, it would take more work on my part and I'm very lazy. And secondly, um, we you can't just play any song as a as a podcaster. We have to have license agreements to use every song. And I use a um, company out of Stockholm, Sweden, handles all our music for 15 euros a month. We pay for all the rights, uh, which is very affordable, which is right around the budget of the show at this point. Uh, and country music, not huge in Stockholm, Sweden. I don't know if that's news to, to anybody out there. The Swedes, not huge country music fans, um, so not a lot of options. But for you, Hunter, I will I will put in uh, you know I'll, I'll put in an hour or two. I'll go through um, their library, try to find the best country I can I can do for this episode, and try to cut some bumper intro and outro music just for you, Hunter. He's um, guilt tripping you, Hunter. See what he's doing. 
It's going to take him yes. hours. Hours. Did you hear him say that again? The Swedes, the Swedes, not big country music fans. So that's who we're like. Fire Saga. You're more like. Have you guys seen that Netflix show? With uh, no. Oh, okay. Never mind then. I have not. I'm sure some listeners have. uh, Oh, I'm sure. No, they'll know what I'm saying. Audience, saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm country. I'm country. Like ninety percent of what I listen to is country. I'd love some. You know, some. Yeah, I'd name drop some stuff in there. I know you like it, Rob. Scott, I don't even know what you're into anymore. I don't but... really care. I'm not a yeah. music. I don't care about music. Totally. I don't totally. really either. I, I, don't, I, I just Lee, I, Lee is the music aficionado. I, I listen to the talk radio 90% of the day. When I turn on music, like usually like 10 minutes later, I'm like, why am I listening to this? And I turn talk radio back on. I'm the same way. I'm like, the same way. Sometimes I'll get sick of talk radio and I'll be like, this is just stressing me out. I can't listen to this anymore. And I'll put music on. And then like 10 minutes later, I'm like, this is dumb. <laughs> I'm going to turn talk radio back on. Yeah. I'm in the, uh, I'm in the same boat, but I do have some, uh, some audience research stuff I wanted to bring up. And this has changed because it's, we've taken a while to cut up, to catch up to these comments. Um, the number one, uh, band listened to by our audience is Fleetwood Mac. I see kidding. that coming. No, I like Fleetwood Mac. I just I just pulled it up again as we were recording because I knew I was going to be reading this, and I just so I've I've known this for about three minutes. Um, the second one is uh, Post Malone. Okay. Which, Post Malone, um, I have it from inside sources uh, that he actually does. I, I, what you know, music more than Scott and I. He's more like hip hop or rap. He's or a rapper, rap? I think. That's rap. He's, yeah. Okay. But he, I, I like it. I don't. I don't like rap. He's got tattoos like, on his face. Yes, very good. Very. He good. does have tattoos on his face. I I know from inside uh, sources that he does not listen. He listens to country music and uh, classic rock. Is the only two genres that he listens to. Okay. Based on crews aboard yachts he's chartered for vacation. Uh, that probably weren't allowed to tell me that, but I just won't mention who they are and we should be okay. Uh, yeah, and then Dr- Drake is the third most listened to. Yeah, he's isn't he like Canadian? He's Canadian though. He's a rapper. I have He's no a Canadian idea. rapper. I believe, I believe, I believe he's, he's a rapper. He's yeah. yeah, he's Latino, Canadian. He owns part of the Toronto Raptors. I think he's black. No, Latino. Or his Latinx fo- or whatever his they say. Photo, he's like wearing a, the, one of those Muslim things where you can only see his eyes. It's kind of hijab. Creepy. Oh, a burqa. He's wearing he's like a like that. Yeah, kind of like, like that. a burqa. Um, Aren't women supposed to What's super ethnic of him? Pretty sure men aren't supposed to wear those. I don't know. It's very no, no, no. It's all about submission, very, though. So if you're a submissive dude, go ahead, knock yourself out. Very, get it. It's very weird. Um, fourth is Eminem, the real Slim Shady. Um, everybody knows who that is. Um, and then the the number five. This must be uh Hunter, Hunter Biden. part of the audience. Florida Georgia Line. Oh, thank God. Thank you, Hunter. Thank you, Hunter. Yeah, that's the only one keeping be, it real. It sounds like we have a lot of uh millennial white men listening to the show it it is hold on choices we are up to six percent female 
Okay. Which is up so, two per, two so based on based on that, I would say that I've confirmed correct that we have lots of millennial white men because of post Malone, uh, Eminem. Uh, yes, forty well, percent of the audience, or no, thirty five percent of the audience is age twenty three to twenty seven. Yes. Wow. That's good. It's yeah. good. Um, Does Trafalgar Group give you all those numbers? <laughs> My what? Trafalgar Group. I don't know. Rely um, oh, man. Oh, boy. I have actually yeah. have them up on my computer right now because that's what I have. What are you? I, I'm missing. Yeah. What are we talking about? I can't yeah. see it. Oh, Pilot Hunter V. You see that? We appreciate Pilot? your feedback. Yes. Very much. We appreciate it. We I'm going to try to find we, you a country, so, a country yeah, song. Yeah, we agree with your assessment. I think Rob does a great job with the EDM. I think it, it does good with what he has to work with. We have a better like, budget. We can do other things. I don't feel like I... It's not all EDM. We do. We did the, the Gandhi. Gandhi has his own theme song. Um... Whenever he's only on once a year, I don't think the world can handle Scott's brother no. on more than once a year. No. Yeah, when he does come on, that is not an EDM. That is like an old Western tune I got that I thought was appropriate. Like folksy, folksy Western. Yes, whatever. So whenever got, that's that that particular track is reserved for whenever Scott's brother <laughs> is on the show as a guest, uh, and n- no one else. Um, yes, we're going to do our our best for the uh, the country. Um, lie. If, if, yeah, that is, we are caught up now. Um, on reviews, five star reviews. Um, we appreciate five star reviews. We like five star reviews, but we yeah. love five star written reviews because it gives us the opportunity to, uh, to chat and make a little end segment like this. Um, live is also a component we will be adding. This should be episode 47. I, I'm just going to have to edit all this out if I'm wrong. Um, 47. And so that means after this, there's three more in 2020 because we do 50 episodes per year and there's 2020 screwed up. So there's 53 Thursdays in, uh, in 2020, which is odd. Really that Jesus. Yes. So we, we released the first 50 Thursdays of the year, which means there's like three more episodes this year. Uh, but after that, we are going live. If you're interested in that, uh, we yeah, kind of like figured out exactly. Don't listen to it. It make it messy. Yeah, um, you won't. It will be messy. You'll think less of me, so just don't listen to it. <laughs> that might be hard to think less of you. I'm not sure. Uh, if you don't like me, if you like me now, don't listen to it because you won't. <laughs> you don't like <laughs> it. Preserve. <laughs> right. Anyway, robertberger.com. There's a link for live to sign up for the uh, email, and I will keep you posted on uh, whatever, whatever, however we're doing it. I haven't fit, quite figured it out. We need to figure that out soon, though. And then, um, Lee, are you signaling? Or are you what are you doing over there, Lee? Wrapping? No, no, I'm just cleaning my screen off. Okay. Oh, you could have seen Lee clean his screen off live if we were live. recording this live. Robertberger.com, B-E-R-G-E-R, live. You. Sign up the email on there, and uh, you'll get the updates on the uh, what's happening with us live. Um, yeah. If you, uh, there's five emails if you to Lee Griffin if you want to um, us to continue this. 
Email is our preferred method of communication. My email is F-A-R-A-I-M at robertberger.com. B-E-R-G-E-R. The German way, not the sandwich way. Mr. Griffing, the uh, requested five emails from uh, listeners to continue this is F-A-R-A-I-M at leegriffing.com. G-R-I-F-F-I-N-G. And Scott Boris is F-A-R-A-I-M at scottboris.com. B-O-R-E-S. Scott, you... uh, I've lost my train of thought. You said something earlier to email you. I forget. Um, Email me uh, the complaints about Lee and Rob. Yeah, Yeah. do that for sure. But I'm expecting like at least 100 emails to continue this. Because we're on 5 out of 73. Oh my God. Five out of 73. And it took us two hours to do it. Five out of 73. Uh, no, I'll edit this down to like hour 45, I think, ish. Okay. Um, which is still almost two hours. Um, it is, we have two minutes with Scott still on. Um, I, I'm losing my train of thought rapidly here. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the show. Um, yes. Take care. Thank you for listening. Thanks, guys. See you later. See ya.
was interesting. That, that, that exit went off the rails. Yeah, it just kind of. I lost my train of thought. I don't know. I'm just well, not in the zone tonight. I don't know. No? I mean, yeah, I'm. I'm Normally, I'm, I thought it was good. I thought it was good. I think yeah. it was meaty think- content. Yeah. It's yeah. tough when I know what I'm going to say or read, but you guys don't. But I don't know. So we got to deal with Scott typically doesn't like this is a new concept for us. I think of just showing up and just rolling with it. Not really knowing what the topic is. I mean, this is Scott does this pretty much every show. Yeah. Yes, he does. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't give a shit. Like it's like I've, I've started the intro before and Scott stopped me to just like, Wait, what, what what topic are we doing? Right. We're not we're not actually gonna discuss what the topic is until oh we're okay. into the show, like after like I need to do the intro. Okay. And then it's it's a surprise to you and I and we just roll with it. Okay. That's how it's gonna and then then next week we'll you'll do that unless I can line up a guest, in which case we'll just completely hose you on this. Yeah, that's fine. This opportunity, I'm good with that. Is that a one gallon Yeti? It is a one gallon bub. Is is there vodka in there? Is there wedding? No, I'm gonna put beer and caffeine mix in it. Oh. Yeah, I, 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 Scott, I just don't understand how you. I mean, we've been talking about recording tonight for several days at the minimum. And this marathon did not come up until today. It's not a marathon. Uh, it's only three miles. Okay. You running. Oh, so then you should be able to go till 11 o'clock tonight. No, I just, Hold I on. just would like to be in bed by, by just, 10, 15. Just too wet. All I hear is sploosh, sploosh, sploosh. <laughs> okay. So it's like there's like a little octopus. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, chair. Lee. I was ready to record earlier, but somebody was playing games with and, their kids. And well, oh God. Scott, you're drinking water. Why? That's not even like it's healthy. not water. I'm putting I'm pouring beer and caffeine mix into my water jug. Okay. Oh, so we wanted to make sure yes. we were concerned. We were the concerned. wife's uh, the wife's running recovery mix. Has caffeine in it, so I take her running recovery mix and pour it in my water. That okay. that allows you at the age of thirty two to, to stay, stay up, up past eight o'clock. 15. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He'll good. still be asleep. He's not going to make it to ten fifteen. How do you uh, how do you think I stayed up the weekend uh, last weekend when you were here? I was what was I drinking at the bar? Vodka and Red Bulls. 